I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm thinking about how to kick off with such a diverse spread of interests. And um, there are quite a few things looking back over your work that I thought you might consider yourself to be sharing. Um, You both have an interest in French politics and culture, an interest in war, post-colonialism, colonialism itself, and with what Jeremy has called an informed worry about the Middle East. Yeah. And you're, you're often uncovering the politics beneath literature or the political motivation of an artist with your piece and, and exploring the politics of the act of creation as well as the politics of the situation that it describes. Mm. I'm thinking of the pieces you've done about um, writers um, and theatre um, and, and theatre practitioners. Um, do you feel a strong sense of responsibility when writing that kind of piece to navigate that maze for the reader? How much of a responsibility do you feel to communicate the work as well as the politics of the situation? I, I feel it's the same as any other contributor, and that what you what you really want to do is to kind of get draw the reader into a world uh, where the, the maximum information is available uh, without. Trying with, without over, over, overloading the, the, the detail. Um, and if you're talking about a, a writer who's, or a creator who, who's enmeshed in a difficult political situation, you've obviously got to give it your best shot to try and account for what the context and the, and the world uh, in, in which that writing unfolds is. You, you have to kind of give a generous account of it for the reader. Uh, let alone try to do the writer in question justice. I, I, I did do this piece in Lebanon in 2006 as the Israelis had been had pulled out. They were pulling out after a very violent uh, incursion into Lebanon. And actually they were on the back foot as they left. Uh, but when I went to meet the, the author, Elias Huri, who produced to me this astonishing novel, Gate of the Sun, which was a kind of account of the the Palestinian Nakba done in the most complicated and, and compelling way, I felt that I had to get Elias Khoury into position to show me what Lebanon was going through as a result of Israel's, Israel's behaviour in the region. So he took me right down to Hezbollah and he knew them all and we went down in the south where the place had been actually ravaged, uh, gave me a range of thoughts about that, brought me back up. I was able to situate the novel in terms of not only what I'd seen myself and my own conversations with Hezbollah and the people living in the South, but also with his view of the whole thing. So actually to give that, to try and give the reader that whole scope, is, that's, what you're, that's what you're up to in that situation. So yes, yes, to, to take a passage through the maze or bring it all together. Mm. I mean, I, with the, the piece about Giuliano Merchamis, um, I was writing about someone who... Um, um, unlike Elias, was 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 dead, and 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 and, and you um, should explain who in he a was. sense, right? I mean, uh, and who in, in in some way had 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 died because of the uh, um, the extremity of his of his own imagination. Um, Giuliano Merchamis uh, uh, was a was an actor um, and a theater director, um, activist, uh, uh, the son of. Um, the son of an Israeli Jewish woman who uh, had been in the Communist Party and uh, who, uh, after Israel's uh, the War of Independence and the Nakba, had married uh, a Palestinian Christian man uh, who uh, had also been um, in, in the political party, uh, in the Communist Party. And uh, Giuliano uh, uh, said that he was 100% Jewish and 100% Arab. And uh, he became a prominent actor um, in Israeli cinema. 
um, but was always kind of on the fault line of Israeli um, and Palestinian, Arab and Jewish. Um, and uh, his mother, um, uh, Arna Mare, uh, went on to found this extraordinary uh, school for the arts in the Janine refugee camp. And her, um, her students um, uh, were raised um, during the uh, first intifada and uh, they, were t- they were teenagers, they were 10, 12, and teenagers, and they went on to become uh, militants um, in the second intifada. Um, Giuliano, after his mother's death, um, uh, went back to Janine and filmed um, her students, now, who are now fighters in the Janine refugee camp, and made this um, incredible film, very powerful film, which I think you can see on YouTube, called um, Arna's Children. And uh, a few years after the film uh, appeared, um, he created a school um, in her honor um, in in the Janine refugee camp um, and uh, where he trained uh, Palestinian artists um, and and actors. Um, Then in 2011, uh, Giuliano was murdered outside of the theater. And I I had... uh, I, I arrived actually in Janine a couple of months after uh, he was killed, and the murder hadn't been solved. And then I returned a couple of years later uh, to do a reported piece on why Giuliano um, had died. He had had two missions, um, intertwined missions at the camp. One was to confront the Israeli occupation with what he called cultural resistance, and the other was to uh, confront what he called the cultural occupation, the occupation of Palestinian cultural life by religious conservatism, and and um, uh, and this placed him in uh, increasingly difficult um, and precarious circumstances because he, although he considered himself a hundred percent Arab Palestinian, um, he was an outsider in the Janine refugee camp and was viewed with some degree of suspicion uh, by people who had power um, in the camp. So. What I what I found um, you know fascinating uh, about uh, the story of Giuliano is that it was an attempt to um, uh, use the imagination to launch um, a kind of um, a kind of cultural revolution under circumstances of occupation, mm-hmm. and I think that what what happened to, to to Giuliano was in some ways a parable of the limitations um, of such a project, and it was a project that attracted a lot of um, you know, well-meaning um, progressives from around the world, and there were, there were a lot of hope was invested in, in that project, and it was very noble, uh, but it was also uh, perhaps um, dangerous, um, and and I think that connection between audacity, the imagination, daring, and danger um, uh, was um, intriguing to me. Did you change your mind about? him once he went there it's a kind of mystery that mystery story that article isn't it because he predicted mm-hmm. he predicted his death well before he, it happened. he did on on youtube um i i you know I, I i still had a lot of admiration um for for giuliano um and it and i and i i think that um political change um transformative political change um for the most part only happens because of people like that because of people who are willing to to uh, cross a boundary and and to take uh, real risks, um, but at the same time, I think that I became disillusioned with the view of Giuliano as just the heartthrob of the radical left, and saw him as a person who uh, was also driven by by ego and who uh, did not always have great respect for local cultural norms. Yeah, it's a very nuanced portrait of him. And I think that, would you say that that's a characteristic of the newspaper? You don't, or the publication, you you don't go for a straightforward hagiography, usually. There are all kinds of ins and outs. Nothing if not nuanced. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What happens if you change your mind during the investigation of a subject or a situation? You do that on the ground, I guess. You do that on the ground, you do it in the piece, don't you? I mean, I don't think there's a lot of difference in that sense, intellectually, in terms of the demand of a subject. Uh, um, Whether it's a piece of reportage 
and you're bringing back material and considering it, whether you're looking at a book that you, you, you just have to get to grips with and you've got a range of thoughts about it um, and you, you throw those in the air and you put them on paper and maybe they don't add up and you know, there's this sort of argumentative process that applies as much in trying to figure out what it was you saw as a reporter as it does when you're trying to get to grips with what a writer thinks and whether you think what they think is any good. I'm thinking, in particular, you mentioned Kosovo already. and um, Yeah, I did go to Kosovo three times, actually. Um, and um, um, I found myself favouring the intervention, you know, by a whisker, really. Um, and it was another extraordinary piece of generosity on the part of the editors. I felt very strongly that the editors, rightly and with very coherent arguments, did not favour the intervention and I could see exactly why but after three stints on the ground I began to change my mind about this Um, and although my view of the intervention was kind of inflected I wasn't gung-ho for it um, it was nonetheless not a popular view they had absolutely no problem running what I said you know they had a kind of a line we had a kind of a line in the office but it was possible for a writer to cross that line and disagree with it um, and risk a certain unpopularity, you know, on, on, on the part of the readers. Um, and, and in that sense, you've already touched upon the idea that um, you have felt privileged to be in the space of the newspaper. Do you consider it a British, a British publication? It's got a very international element to it. I think it would be quite good to ask somebody who lives in the US about that. <laughs> so do I. Uh, to me, it seemed often extremely British. <laughs> when, I, when I worked in the office. Um, Go on, tell, tell us. <laughs> it's funny, I was, before I, I got here, I was thinking of the, um, that, that Sting song, um, uh, An Englishman in, in New York. York. And I thought, well, I, I, was the, I was the American in, in, yeah. in London. So yeah. I, I think that it w- I would have felt it much more, perhaps more strongly than the Jeremy. But I just want to go back briefly to the question that you posed earlier about the, the nature of, 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 of LRB writing and what, what, what strikes me about the Jeremy's writing, for example, and Jeremy's writing uh, influenced me a great deal, is the unsettled probing quality, the, the, the curiosity, the, um, the struggle to, um, to, to, to reach a conclusion. And, and, and then I, I think that often articles in some of the rival publications have been about um, uh, reaching a definitive viewpoint, settling an argument. And that's rarely the case with LRB pieces. The, the purpose of LRB pieces, for the most part, has been to um, open up a subject, and, and to, and to, to um, own up to certain ambivalences, unsettled spaces, and ambiguities. And I think that often makes the writing uh, much richer. Um, uh, there's a deeper, I think, a deeper level of curiosity. I used to read um, uh, uh, Jeremy's pieces. I, I wasn't always able to follow them because... <laughs> no, no, in, in a good sense, because there, there, was, some, there was something kind of... Mysterious about them. They were very. They were very. They were political pieces, and yet they had strong poetic inflections. And I had to read them several times sometimes to to to, to really follow him to the end of his argument. Um, but I think that's because he was really struggling in those pieces, and it really it made a very powerful impression. On I him. do like the idea that writers should struggle with what what their material is in front of the reader. I do think it's okay to kind of. Yeah, to be seen to be sweating a bit with one's material. I think it's okay. I was also going to say that, you know, that, that this kind of richness and willingness to kind of get, get to grips with subjects, I mean, we're by no means the only paper that does this kind of thing. The world is full of, luckily, some really classy writers who go about this thing in the way that I'd aspire to go about it. But I do think that the question of not equivocation, but ambivalence, is, is something that the LRB has made a, a, a very good habit of. And, and that, to my view, has to do with the editor, to do with Mary Kay Wilmers, and the fact that she doesn't like things to be settled easily or in a trice or wrapped up and put away. So she would rather 
look at a piece and say to you, yeah, I see what it is that you're on about, but actually, I think you should try and kind of move some of this, these thoughts forward a bit and question what it was that you'd originally handed me as a piece of copy, and we'll, and we'll have a look at it once you've done that. Um, and you do, once you've gone back and thought, oh, okay, she's, she's not entirely clear about whether that's a, 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 a dead certainty, as, a, as I assumed it to be, you do, as you start to look into what you said, begin to reflect and maybe think, yeah, but there's another angle to this. And can I do that without creating mush in, in prose? And that's, I think, what she does with her writers very well, is to get them to, to, to allow them to have a second thought but not to turn the piece into mush. And that's a really... I'm really grateful to to be edited in that way. Not that it's always easy. Yeah, what, what's the process like? What, how does the back and forth It's very work? tiresome, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's seriously tiresome. Does it happen on email, yeah, in yeah. person? <laughs> all, all kinds of ways. How many rounds yeah. in the box? <laughs> how many rounds in the ring do you, are there? Well, it depends how it goes. I mean, some, some pieces <laughs> seem to go through fine. Other, yeah. Others go through several iterations and, you know, you're left kind of... Um, feeling a bit sort of flat on the floor, but actually the results are normally better than you'd expected. Mm. I think the, the, in, in the case of the Egypt piece that I mentioned, I, I seem to recall storming out of the office almost <laughs> in tears over <laughs> yeah, the first edit. Right. And, yet, and yet ultimately I, I, I had to acknowledge the, 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 the wisdom of that editorial judgment. I mean, I sound almost like a... Um, a member of the, the Communist Party who ultimately has to acknowledge that the party is always right in the end. Yeah, but we but, are all but, in the party, actually. But, but, but usually, almost invariably, the, the, the editors, yeah. I, I think, are very sound in their, yeah. in their judgments about yeah. the shape of the piece and how it should develop. And, 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 you know, you benefit enormously from that kind of guidance. And I'd also want to say that, you know, as a, as a victim of editing... Uh, one isn't simply at the mercy of Mary Kay. You have a whole range of, of there's a sort of Politburo-like thing, which is, <laughs> and by which I mean everybody has a, a view, and the views and, and the, the the collective focus on your piece is actually unbelievably flattering in some way. It's re- it feels really very very good to have several r- editors looking at it and telling you where you where they think you might have slipped up. And the best thing about that is that you feel held. You can go out on a limb in your, in your early drafts and take a few chances, and maybe they work or maybe they don't. But in the end, you, your piece will be kind of rocked into position, not just by the editor, but by her colleagues, who are also our colleagues. And this is the most you know, touching thing about working through the paper, I feel... I feel very guarded and protected, and even if I say quite extreme things, that actually I've that this it's been screened. Um, there may be technical mistakes or factuals cropping up here or there, but by and large, I've been helped to get the tone into position, and I think that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Is it ever dangerous to show the struggle and the workings on the page? Um, in, I'm thinking about the piece um, on the Allenby crossing. Yeah. Where um, you mentioned that the number of deaths in the crossing light up on an image and could be mistaken for lumpfish caviar. Yeah. Um, I found that very moving when I read it, and it's mm. part of the power of mm. the piece. But I sense that there's an emotion at play when you write about migration and the uninvited. I think you've got to... I feel I've got to go for if if, if 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 a notion like that kind of crosses one's mind, I think I think one's got to go for it, and then and then you've got this kind of editorial taste that will tell you whether you've kind of you've done something transgressive or offensive. But it, I, I was talking about what had happened after the '67 war and how when how the expulsions after the expulsions actually, Palestinians started trying to come back across the, the River Jordan and 
including um, um, including fighters, and um, the Israelis took up their positions and and created a lot of loss a loss of life as people were coming back. Um, um, sometimes there are images which you just have to take a chance with, and you don't want to be vulgar, and you don't want to be transgressive. Is that what? I mean, is that your question? Or? Yeah. But you also you don't. But also you, something about how it portrays you, the writer. Yeah. Well, you don't want piece. to. You don't want to overinvest. It's difficult. It's a question of judgment because you don't want to. You want to keep the material, roughly speaking, clear. Um, but of course, sometimes you you see something that, that is so shockingly apparent that maybe you should say it. Um, well, I think the, the, the I mean the great thing about the about the about the paper when when it comes to subjects like Israel Palestine since you just mentioned it is that you're 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 very much allowed to encourage to have a point of view um, but you're discouraged from being pious correct you know mm-hmm. and and correct. and so you know your your point of view um, is reflected through through the reporting, through the stories that you tell, through the, the through the through the facts that you mm-hmm. you foreground. Um, but the editors are, I think, are uh, allergic and rightly allergic to to cliches, to gestures of sanctimony. To um, I mean, you're never going to see references to women and children in the in the one review, for example. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I think that's what makes the you know the reporting, which is opinionated, um, so so powerful. Um, yeah, yeah. That it is that it is averse to that kind of uh, that kind of cliche. I mean, there's this other process too, um, which is the kind of um, the ferocity of the letters page, so that actually you know you you have to brace when you when you when a, when the papers carried a piece because it's you the readers. You kind of come back uh, with with drastic critiques of what it is that that, one, that one's tried to tried to, to spell out and maybe got completely wrong. Um, I think the letters page is a wonderful kind of it, it, it's it's a wonderful corrective to to what might sound if Adam and I as Adam and I have been talking for the last half hour as 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 a, as a slightly self-regarding process. I, I don't, we don't mean it to sound like that at all. We were trying to talk about the inner workings of the paper, but <laughs> actually, it's it, there are so many sort of harsh eyes and, and and intellects out there who are ready to take you on. So you're never quite at rest with the. I think with, I, with the, and, with and the, the letters piece. page actually, I think evokes a, a wider world. Um, than you would see, for example, in the letters page of the New York Review, which which does feel like a yeah. conversation among contributors. You know, the cliche of the the New York Review of each other's books. Um, yeah. the, in, the, in the London Review of books, uh, the letters page, you're going to see names that you have uh, yeah. never seen before. Yeah. They're they're just from yeah. informed people uh, who read the paper, who yeah. uh, but who are not themselves published writers or, yeah. or contributors to the paper. And they're coming at you and saying they're making really pertinent thought points that that. That might might not have crossed your mind, or they're pointing out things that you simply hadn't understood. Have you ever That's been? Great. Have you ever been hurt by a letter, or uh, enraged? Hurt. Enraged or hurt? <laughs> Do you allow yourself those emotions? I like I like it that readers kind of come in and you know want to want to kind of have an argument with you. Um, after all, to the extent that we're published in the paper, we're on, we're on the we're on this kind of platform, aren't we? And the possibility of other people mounting the platform and saying, "No, I, ju- I just think you've got that all wrong." I think is, is great. So you can't, you shouldn't really be hurt. You can, you can be really, really, really embarrassed when you've got something wrong. Every journalist gets something wrong sooner or later, some sort of factual, and it's good that it should be pointed out. But um, it's always good to know that you've struck a nerve. I guess. Um, I mean, I did. Too. I did get one. Well, I mean, probably the, the 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 letter that troubled me the most was one that. I received um, not it was not published in the in the in the in, in the letters page, um, but it was a, a, a letter pr- uh, prompted by the, that that article about Giuliano Merhamis promising that I would be uh, anally raped if I ever appeared in Janine again, um, and, wow. and, and, and then killed. Oh, um, it, but but that 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 letter actually was by um, the son of a woman um, 
who uh, very much admired the piece, and apparently he hadn't even read the piece. <laughs> so <laughs> that was probably yeah. the most um, intense yeah. letter I'd, I'd ever yeah. received. <laughs> yeah, so I can't say I've been threatened yeah, um, in the letters page. Um, but, uh, Could you tell us a bit about your article on Franz Fanon? I've, I wanted to touch upon it earlier when we were talking about this idea of not being pious. Um, but representing a very complex portrait of someone who is often revered. Um, there are many different shades of grey in that article. Mm-hmm. What was it like writing it? Um, uh, that was a, a really incredible experience. It, 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 um, that piece arose out of, um, out of an anthology uh, published by uh, uh, the Edition de la Découverte, a French publisher, um, uh, uh, edited by um, two scholars, and it was um, uh, a collection of previously uncollected, and in some cases unpublished writings, um, that Franz Fanon, the Martinican psychiatrist who um, joined the, the, uh, the Algerian liberation struggle, um, had written on... Um, uh, for the most part, on, on psychiatry, there were also texts, um, theatrical texts that he'd written when he was a young man, um, miscellany, re- really, but but very but very interesting um, miscellany that that gave a, I think a different um, image than the um, kind of the heroic iconic image of, of Fanon as um, as, a, as a doctor who um, joined the um, liberation struggle. I think that. You know, here was someone who had been seen as just kind of a, a mascot, as a as a you know as a as a third world liberation figure, and here you saw someone who um, was a really a profound uh, thinker and and philosopher, and someone who and you a, know and a practicing psychiatrist and a practicing and a practicing uh, psychiatrist who was working through the ideas of forensi on war trauma and Lacan the mirror phase and and um, and so um, I, I think I spent seven or eight months reading this enormous anthology. It was, I think, about a thousand pages long, and um, and returning to to a figure um, whom uh, who had always been important to me. I um, uh, I'd actually written about him, uh, I think, fifteen or so years earlier for the uh, New York Times uh, book review, um, and um, so it was a it was a real journey in a way. Um, it is actually a really amazing piece because you see Fanon going into this cologne. It, it, it's very striking. Fanon going in as a, as a qualified medic into this co- French colonial hospital, mental hospital, where there's something like 187 patients or 182, I've forgotten, mm-hmm. and half of them are chained. They're, they're tied to beds or tied to trees in the ground. And, he, I mean, and he's looking at this and saying... What's going on here? You know, I mean, it, well, you can was, have enlightened psych- psychiatry in the in the metropole and completely unenlightened colonial sort of slave psychiatry in in in, in, in you know well, he in, was in the he was he was applying ideas that he'd learned about um, in the uh, late 1940s, early 1950s at a at a psychiatric um, center called Saint Alban, directed by a resistance psychiatrist, yes. uh, Francois. Uh, Tosquelles, who um, had been, who had organized the psychiatric services of the Spanish Republican yeah. Army, um, and he was deeply um, influenced by Tosquelles's practice and and wanted to apply those ideas elsewhere. I think that you know um, what what hadn't really been properly understood by a lot of people is that Fanon went to Algeria as a representative of the French colonial administration. Yeah. He didn't go there as a liberation yeah. fighter. Yeah. He, he was aware of the colonial context mm-hmm. and it actually uh, had, had written about Algerians in France. But, but um, he went there just to practice psychiatry and it was in practicing psychiatry that he was revolutionized mm-hmm. because he realized that he could not effectively practice it under these conditions of extreme violence and oppression. Well, before I open it out to the floor, one last question for us. Um, what do you think are the challenges facing the London Review of Books right now? You've both been writing for the publication for so many years. You must have seen it through many different curves and ups and downs. What, but, are, the, what, what are the big 
things that need tackling for you right now? I think that's something that, that's going to come up in, in when we extend the conversation, but something that strikes me looking back is that when I went, when I began writing for the paper, right up through the 1990s, I did a lot of work on colonial Africa. And when I say colonial, I mean struggles that were still going on after, the, after most of Africa had been decolonized in the 60s. To run through it again, it's Western Sahara, Namibia, South Africa, Angola, Mozambique, where there had been technical liberation, but actually the forces of colonialism were on their case and determined to stop it in Angola and Mozambique. And I felt, as a younger person then, totally free to write about these, these subjects unfolding in a distant continent. And, and the key question there being that these were, these were colonial matters, or ex-colonial, or rather unset, unsolved colonial matters. I had no problem with that, because actually my background, if I had any political background, it was sort of latterly during the end of the 70s and early 80s, in the international solidarity movements, you know, against apartheid in favour of Mozambique and Angola for the Palestinians and one thing or another. So it struck me as absolutely not a contradiction that I was a white British man covering these stories. It seemed seemed to me a completely coherent and fluent process. And also the solidarity movements were full here in Britain of people like me. I mean, white English people. If they hadn't been, they wouldn't have worked. And so I think the challenge, if I want to frame it like that, is to reconsider and reimagine a writer for the LRB covering similar sorts of stories wherever they they might arise and thinking, but who would that writer be? Would that writer have the same kind of curriculum vitae, uh, the same kind of complexion, the same kind of British disposition as I had? Or would that writer be someone you'd be looking for from actually another, another space, including, in the case of writing about Africa, writers who were actually in Africa? And I think this is one of the big challenges the paper will have to kind of figure out in the years to come. Uh, so that would be one of them. What about you, Adam? I, you, no, I, 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 I would agree. <laughs> I, my experience was, was, uh, was different because um, when I was uh, writing from, uh, let's say, from, uh, from the West Bank or, or, for that matter, from Algeria or, or um, Lebanon or, or, or Egypt, I, I think that, that I ex- experienced my identity not as a, as, a, as, a, as a white man, really, but as someone who was a, you know, let's say a non-Jewish Jew, right, <laughs> whose, whose Jewishness was suddenly actually rather important in certain sure. contexts. Sure. Um, but but I but I, I couldn't agree with you more that that that, that one of the one of the challenges uh, for the LRB in the not just the future but the the, the present the immediate future um, is um, the discovery of, of of new voice new voices and and expanding the ranks of LRB writers to include people who are reflective of the complex reality of our societies and to, to, to move beyond a certain uh, coterie. And I think that's, I think that's happening. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, when you look back on those struggles that you felt so fluently part of, why do you think you, you, you said that they wouldn't have worked if people like you weren't involved? Could you unpack that a little bit? Oh, sorry. Well, I mean, yes, not the yeah. struggles themselves, but the solidarity campaigns where we used to be asked to do things like, you know, write stuff, petition MPs, um, and kind of keep these places alive in, the, in, 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 in British culture. There, there simply wouldn't have been enough people to do it if it had been confined to minorities or exile, or actually... Uh, exiles from sub-Saharan African struggles and London was full of them actually during the 70s and 80s and 90s you know if you went to the Africa Centre you could meet a whole range of people who'd been slung out by regimes Um, but they were not in themselves sufficient to constitute big solidarity movements against apartheid, against the kind of harassment of Angola and Mozambique you know or or against the Moroccan colonisation of Western Sahara you needed British indigenous people 
to rally to those causes. And actually, the anti-apartheid, the anti-apartheid m- movement here, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, was, was pretty impressive. There were many, many people working against apartheid in however, however modest a way. Um, so it is about spheres of influence. Yes. is an interesting yes. idea for what you're talking about, which is how you go forward, how the, how the lobby goes forward, because it's also about those spheres of influence, isn't it? I think it is, and it's also about the way that the world is shifting. And, you know, the global south is, is, is so much more present in our lives and in our spaces, in, in our northern spaces, that we have to completely recon, re, reconceive this. It's already happening. It's just that we have to kind of describe it to ourselves and get hold of what's going on. Okay. Well, that was really great. And if we can open it out to questions... That would be wonderful. Do we have a mic that's moving? Great. So, any questions? Right at the back there, hand up. As, 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 as writers and, and um, sorry, as editors, editorial staff, and writers who feel that they've been able to write against the grain sometimes uh, of, of the paper and have been um, and, 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 and have done that comfortably, um, I, I, I mean, I'm very struck, say, by the presence or the continued presence of Christopher Hitchens on the LRB, as an LRB contributor after his turn, as it were, and the presence of somebody like Rory Stewart, um, they, you know, very sort of uh, culturally uh, LRB people, as it were, and yet, and yet their, their politics are very, very at odds with, uh, uh, with, with the editorial line at various times. I, I, wonder, are there, I wonder, are there any tensions that you're able to tell us about? Any, any, any tensions that have come up with those sorts of figures, with, with their recruitment and their retention and, and with, in communication with them? Yeah, yes, I, 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 I could talk a little bit about that. Um, I mean, Hitchens is a very good case because the, the Hitchens problem arose slightly before the turn in 2003 <coughs> because the paper wasn't really happy. And by the paper, I mean Mary Kay and, and Jean McNichol the deputy editor. Um, and I think I'm writing... The date would be... Yes, and Carl, Carl Miller. We're not entirely happy with the way Bosnia was being described. Um, and Hitchens was very much in favour of an intervention in Bosnia. Um, and there was trouble about that position. Um, and we didn't entirely like it. I say we, but I wasn't actually a member of the editorial board, the editors at that point. Um, And so those kinds of cracklings in the air in the office, they they often arose. We also had a a range of, of, of interesting Tories during the Thatcher era, Ian Gilmore in particular. We liked Ian Gilmore because he was capable of explaining just what the difficulty of the Palestinians was and how intractable it seemed to becoming year by year. But Gilmore was a Tory. He was an anti-Thatcherite, but nevertheless a Tory. Rory Stewart is another example of someone who we feel uh, is a sufficiently interesting writer to publish, and we argue about. It's this kind of thing that, you know, we might sulk about to and fro between ourselves and about whether it gets in or whether it doesn't. But there is there's constant kind of conversation, um, occasional bad temper. Um, but that's what happens in a collective process. And we do have all these oddities or outliers who are, who are still with us. And I, to, me, that's a good, to me, that's a good thing. What about you, Adam? Do you feel that that difference in representation of you, the exceptions are important to prove the rule? I mean, I think that's what makes the London Review of Books lively, uh, that it doesn't have, uh, it doesn't have a line. Obviously, have a obviously, there are some things that we feel uh, passionate about and where you're going to find more consensus than on some other issues. Um, but, you know, the LRB, is a, the, t- the, the LRB team is a collection of people who are very iconoclastic, um, very different from, from, from one another. And I yeah. think that there, there are people who don't feel, who, who are not particularly comfortable in situations of absolute consensus. I think they find it, for the most part, they find it boring. 
Um, and, and, and so um, I, I think the paper draws a, a lot of strength from, from that. He's right. From that, I mean, yeah. I mean at the risk of like, uh, you know, the risk of, of saying something for which Nikita would rightly uh, ridicule me at, at dinner later on, um, I do think that, you know, to be a writer or an intellectual in some ways, to be, uh, to be out of sync you know, to to be in a in a position of 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 dissent, discomfort at an angle, and I think that defines most of the people who write for the London Review of Books. So so absolute agreement is actually pretty rare, I would say. I, I, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of contention uh, in the office, but ultimately, I think what matters is the piece interesting. Is it is it persuasive on its own terms? Does it push the discussion in some way? Um, and, and so for that reason, we do publish people who, um, you know, are not, um, comfortably left liberal, uh, or, or radical for that matter. Um, uh, I mean, another example would be someone like Ferdinand Mount, right? Who I think is one of yes. the, the, the paper's most brilliant writers. Um, and he's, he's hardly someone with whom... I would agree on on any number of issues, but I, you know, really admire his prose. So you could put the the editors together as as they are inevitably in a room, and have the odd spat, more than the odd spat, and and the odd disagreement, but you certainly couldn't bring all the contributors together, some of whom are here in this room, um, and sit them down for a day and expect them to get along. Because th- there's chalk and cheese in that. There's no question about it. And that, I mean, I find that some, it, it's a kind of quickening thing for me. That's what I like about it. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I want to ask you, you talked about the letters page and the influence of the letters page. <coughs> the letters page is still a mediated space. Uh, the, the reality of today's journalism and uh, communication has, is the great expansion of uh, uh, unmediated comment and uh, and criticism through uh, yeah. and the t- tweets are the very opposite of what the London Review of Books stands for. I think you've got to have a 32,000 word tweet. For, but, <laughs> it's uh, a long time. I just wonder how you react to this uh, new reality, new technical reality in, in the world of publishing. I'm not really equipped to talk about that because I'm not on Twitter. But But Adam, can you talk about that? I mean, we are in that world. There's no question about it. The one thing I could say about that is that the letters pages are, are really um, nice in that way, that they're still granular and they're, they're going away from, from highly condensed uh, kinds of discourse. But I do think there's really... When I, when I go on to Twitter, because I have to, I also see very, very interesting things happening there quite fascinating stuff being said, but could you talk a bit more about social media? Well, I'm, I'm on hiatus from Twitter at the moment after reading Richard Seymour's book, The Twittering Machine. Um, but uh, I, I think that there, there, there are certain styles of, of, of rhetoric on, on Twitter that are really um, very much opposed to what the LRB does. I mean, particularly things like virtue signaling and, and, sh- and naming and shaming mm. uh, that... Um, yeah, that in my view are just antithetical to what to what the uh, to what the LRB is about. Because the even when the LRB um, is in a, a politically campaigning mode, and, and we and, and and we are sometimes about issues that you know we really care very passionately about, um, I still think that our purpose is to uh, refresh the imagination, to intensify curiosity. Um, Certainly, to 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 identify perpetrators of crimes, uh, but not for the sake of feeling kind of uh, you know better about ourselves. And I and I do think that a lot of the of the discussion on Twitter tends towards that. Have you ever caused a Twitter storm? Then did you ever deliberately? He is a Twitter drop storm. Something, <laughs> drop something oh, provocative. A one man Twitter storm. <laughs> and walk away. No. No. I want to ask you a question about a journalist relationship with a situation where there is military operation going on. I read your article many years ago about your experience in Kuta uh, Kanaval in Angola, <coughs> where you were 
ordered to leave the area yeah. and you were reporting something, how did you feel? Because I can give you an example of a situation which I experienced a reactions, or reactions from a set of journalists from Britain, BBC, mm. American, CBS, and so forth. When I was at a Polisario camp in Tinduf in Algeria. In 1987. That's it. You I know, know I know your face. <laughs> I can't recognize it. Yeah. I, I was in a, in a tent with my wife. Yeah. And we were... We were, yeah. was we, I we was there. We were, we were sharing yeah. this uh, tent. Yes. And there were yeah. these journalists who started protesting because in the middle of the night, the uh, soldiers came in, the Polisario soldiers, and told them to get on this... 135 Hercules plane that was waiting yep. there because there was going to be a sandstorm yep. and they would be stuck there for about seven days. Yep. And they were outrageous about it because they, did, they started calling them all kinds KGB. of KGB, Gestapo, yeah, yeah. and yeah. all that. Do you, but you showed a different face in Angola. Uh, can why, I just say something you? about the, 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 this episode in Western Sahara? There was the most terrible sandstorm that followed. And these journalists, who didn't have a lot of time, were evacuated by the Polisario for their own good. And the Polisario said, you know, hell is about to break loose over this camp, and this sandstorm is going to go on for three days. And I don't think the hacks believed it. They thought, oh no, there's something up here. They want to hide something from us. Actually, when they'd gone, it was disaster. You couldn't walk three yards. In, In 1990, I still had sand in my wallet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you know, in between my kind of scratched, expired credit cards from that. The thing about Angola was we had to get out because we were told we, I was with the army, not I wasn't, and, um, not with, I wasn't really with commissars of, of, of the Angolan government. I had to, uh, I and my party of journalists had to go because uh, um, we were under fire, and there were casualties, and we. And, I was very, very happy to go, to get out. But we were allowed to see as much as we could. And that's a great thing of, of, of some of those places that even though the regimes were, they were liberation regimes with the usual kinds of strictures that they, they imposed both on, both on their followers and their peoples and their guests. You actually, if you were patient, had a lot of leeway. And I felt that I had a lot of leeway. The only place I didn't really was in Angola um, because that was a serious regime and it was fighting a very, very serious war. Mm. And there were 55,000 Cubans there and they weren't going to mess around. If they wanted to get you out of that somewhere, they would get you out of there. If they didn't want to take you, they wouldn't take you. But we got to Quito Cuanaval because they said this is going to be historically a decisive battle in southern Africa where you're going to see apartheid go under. It won't, it won't be visible now, although we're talking about it, but in years to come, you'll see that the combination of the military effort and the diplomatic, diplomatic effort swung it away from, from the, the possibility of apartheid protracting its time in southern Africa. And they were right, because they'd won a victory there. But when they took us down there, of course, <laughs> the South Africans hadn't gone, and they were very, very happy to kind of to shell us. And so we were told to leave, and we did. I mentioned one or two of the controversies. Um, I'm thinking perhaps of Hugh Robertson's, Hugh Robertson's piece um, on Gaddafi. Why did Gaddafi have to go? And also the uh, Mearsheimer and Malt piece. What specifically about those controversies? Well, they sort of hit the uh, they did. front pages. They did. Sorry, I was going to say they hit the front pages of the national press in this country, right. those, those pieces. Well, the, the Mearsheimer Wall piece has an interesting history because um, uh, John Mearsheimer and Steve Walt's article about about the about the Israel lobby um, was originally commissioned by the Atlantic magazine, um, and the Atlantic magazine uh, refused to publish it, even though uh, John Mearsheimer and Steve, Stephen Walt were two highly respected uh, political scientists, one at the University of Chicago and the other at, at Harvard. And it was, um, I believe that it was Perry Anderson who, uh, discuss- who, who learned about this article um, and, and read it and then uh, presented it to 
to Mary Kay Wilmers and the uh, editorial team at the uh, London Review, and um, you know explained its significance. And uh, the LRB, of course, ended up um, publishing it to um, great excitement and some uh, fury. And um, I have my own disagreements with some of the arguments that that Walt um, and Mearsheimer made, but I think that they also made a, a really important contribution to understanding the phenomena of the way that pro-Israel organizations um, organize and the way that they um, uh, uh, shape and constrain uh, public debate in the United States. Um, And uh, I I think that um, partly thanks to that article, um, uh, there's much greater space um, in the United States for uh, discussing organizations um, like, uh, like like APAC. Um, Hugh Roberts uh, Hugh Roberts is a rather different instance. Hugh Roberts, um, for those of you who don't know him, is is probably the most distinguished uh, authority on Algeria uh, writing in English. He teaches at at, at Tufts, um, uh, and I mean his work on Algeria is um, is, is really pivotal. Uh, we asked him to. Uh, he, I think he we had, he wanted to write on Libya, on the uh, the NATO war in Libya, and when that article appeared, um, there there was quite a bit of, of anger uh, about it, not least among uh, liberal and left wing uh, Arabs, uh, including friends of mine, who felt that the article. Uh, was not sufficiently critical of the Qaddafi regime and that it failed to um, show sufficient empathy for uh, the Libyan uh, rebellion um, against the regime. Um, I'm going to put that uh, to one side. I mean, I, it's a complicated discussion, but what I will say is that uh, Roberts's critique um, of the NATO operation and of its consequences I think to some degree um, has been vindicated, and and some of those who uh, were outraged um, by by Hugh's arguments have been forced to concede that that Hugh um, uh, understood uh, what the implications of the NATO uh, attack might be. And Hugh, of course, is coming from a very Algerianist background. I think he was very influenced uh, by the analysis that the Algerians had of uh, the situation um, in Libya. The Algerians knew Libya better than really anyone else in North Africa. And in fact, uh, Bouteflika, um, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, who was the president of Algeria, had had a meeting uh, with the American ambassador in Algiers at the time and had told him exactly what would happen if um, Gaddafi uh, was removed from power. Um, so, and I, I think he was very much informed by his Algerian context. So, uh, it, it took a. It was a real risk for the paper uh, to to run a piece like that, and of course, the title was provocative. Um, uh, LRB titles often have an insouciant quality, and I think if you judge the piece purely on the basis of the title, you know who said Gaddafi had to go, then you would reach a very crude understanding of what that article was about. I mean, we're talking about a. I think a. a Fifteen or eighteen thousand word article that was deeply um, immersed in in Libyan history and the relationship between East and West, and, and I mean an article that I, I you know, can't begin to summarize here. The title was uh, perhaps a little too playful, but I think that the, that that article actually reread today will seem, in my view, seems very very prescient. But it's an interesting moment when you feel you've got yourself into trouble. I mean, is that part of your? Yeah, Questions. I think it's also, um, I thought at the time it was important because of the um, calamity over Iraq, you know, the sectarian bloodbath that followed intervention there. Yet here we, here we were again with Sarko and Cameron, yeah. you know, with hilarious in the yeah. background. Let's, yeah. not for, let's not forget Béachel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Whose um, yeah. nickname, I just, I, I just learned that his nickname, James Walcott in his uh, brilliant uh, review of the new Sontag biography notes that uh, Bashel's uh, uh, nickname in uh, during Bosnia. the Bosnian War was was uh, was DHS um, Dozer a Sarajevo. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? 
Thank you very much. Um, at the risk of offending probably half the room, um, looking at the next 40 years, what should the LRB do to better engage younger people? More than half the room, mate. <laughs> <laughs> this is a question for you guys. Do you mean engage them as readers? As readers. Keep looking for writers. Um, your question being that, or your, your feeling being that, really the, the age group is sort of, uh, is kind of, a little bit kind of crinkly. I wonder about that, though, whether, I mean, because I, you know, I look at, you know, I have some familiarity with the, you know, the, the New York Review's office culture compared to the London Review books. And one of the things that strikes me about the way the LRB operates as an institution is that, um, it has always empowered um, young people who work there, uh, very much in contrast with the New York Review during uh, the Bob Silvers era when young people worked for Silvers without really being encouraged at all, without, without having very little autonomy, feeling suffocated in many ways. Um, uh, if you go into the LRB office, you're going to see a lot of people who are, you know, in their you know, late, late 20s to mid-30s who... Are, are given you know enormous um, leeway and 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 who you know are you know publishing you know really um, important pieces and who are shaping the contents um, of the magazine um, and I think that you know when I uh, when you posed the question I thought well I'm, I'm actually not so worried about the London Review of Books because I see these young people working in the office who are passionate literary, engaged with the world, interested in art and politics, and, and I think they are going to create a new LRB that young people are going to be interested um, in reading. Not all young people, of course, but enough to keep, that, to keep uh, the LRB alive and well. So it can't, by definition, be static. And since, also by definition, a lot of the editors who've come on board in the last sort of seven or eight years, like, young, uh, it has to follow that there will be younger contributors. And I'm pretty sure I know that the average age of the readership has fallen. Yes. Because it used to be people of my age, you know, I mean, across the board, and it's no longer the case. So something is happening. Do you think I that think that's that. a to- is that a tonal change that means... Well, what does I it have to do with the, the access online to the articles? I think, I think the online availability of, of, of the paper is, is a tremendous help to reach a wider readership of all ages, actually. Um, but I don't, I don't altogether observe a tonal change, even though I know the paper is evolving. Um, there are things I read which I, I know I, it's true I wouldn't have seen in the paper five years ago or longer ago. Um, but no, I... The, because of the way I read, and I suppose I read for continuity because I'm that kind of reader, I see a sort of, I see something going on that, that's really um, consistent, but I may well be wrong about that. There are lurches and changes, and, and there's interesting writers coming in who I would never expected expected to be part of the, the scene, and I welcome that, and we just have to be patient, you know. Was there another question here? Uh, yes, well, short question. Uh, have there been any subjects or perhaps figures or topics with which you've been fascinated or obsessed for a, a very long time, but uh, on which you've never written yet? That's a good question. I don't think there are. And if there were, and were I to reach into my mind and try and find them, it might turn out that the reason I hadn't written about them was probably because I suspected I'd make a hash of it and get it wrong in some way. Um, I have been allowed to write about things that are kind of off my beat. I mean, I, you know, there's a, a couple of occasions where I've written about poets who are very dear to me, um, and I like doing that, but I wouldn't make a habit of it. But no, I don't, I don't think I, I think most of the ground's been covered, or it's been, or I've, you know, I've walked away from it. And, yeah. One, is it one last question there from the lady at the back? Yeah. Right behind. Oh, oh, both of you, I think. So, the one behind you first. I'm going to be a little bit out of sync, uh, along with the writers of the uh, LRB. 
I know that the topic of this uh, session this evening uh, was to do with um, very courageous reporting and dreadful events elsewhere in the world. However, um, I'm here on behalf of a friend of mine who couldn't be here, we are here on her behalf, who wrote a letter, and it was quite ferocious, to the LRB. And I'm speaking because I don't think you will hear this from the media, including the LRB. Um, so that's why I'm speaking now. She wrote this letter, and, it ha and, and um, she received an acknowledgement uh, in July that it would be considered, but it hasn't appeared. Now, I don't know what the timescale of these things are, uh, so that may be quite common. The out-of-syncness is that the letter was about the LRB's coverage of um, what's happening to Julian Assange. And um, as we speak, of course, he's incarcerated in, in Belmarsh. I, uh, I have a copy. I'm saying this again because I don't know that you would know this. Can I just otherwise. interrupt you and ask, do, do, sorry, you, have, sorry. do you have a question? Do you have a question that you could pose? I, I, we don't I'm have that to, much time. So. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to... Just, I have a copy of the letter, and I'm going to give it to mm -hmm. associate editors and the chairperson. I also have some copies if other people want to read it. I also want to say, before I ask my question, that Craig Murray uh, made a shocking, shocking and detailed report of what happened to Julian Assange when he went into the Magistrates Court, Westminster Magistrates Court, okay, three, or four, so, three or four days thanks, ago. Thanks very much. So and I'm just saying, Craig Murray, look it up. My question is, yeah. why hasn't it been published? Great, thanks very much. Okay. I'm not in a position to answer that because I haven't seen the letter. Um, but it can take... It can take a very long time for stuff to get published, but I would have thought that if it was a letter that hasn't been published by now, the decision has been not to publish it. Uh, as regards articles, um, we can have them there waiting around for months at a stretch, but I believe that the thing of a letter is that uh, if it's not published uh, within a few months of receipt, then it, it's gone, basically. Yep. Could, we have a, the final, could we have the final question from... Thanks very much. Uh, thank you so much. In, in part, my questions were answered, but I was wondering if you could say a bit more about, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a great fan, uh, um, uh, of how much do you think your readers drive the work of the, of the publication? I mean, in part, you've said that, but it, it's interesting. Could you say that again? How, um, much, do how much do you think that the readers, the readership, drives the work of the Drives the, of work, the, of drives the, the work of the publication. And whether, well, this is, I guess, a lot, very debated, whether there's a style, there's a literary style. One reads the LRB and one senses that there is not a uniformity of style, but a sort of resonances across the pieces. But what is your... Jeremy and I were actually talking about that this morning, whether there's an LRB a, style. <laughs> I, I think all papers have a style, if, 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 if they're any good. Um, and that style is somewhat forced on them by a, by a kind of a consensus among editors about what, how a piece should sound and what the kind of, what, what the kind of resonance and the kind of weight of, of, of argument should be, um, which is also, by the way, another interesting question about how we get younger, different writers in without feeling that we're somehow breaking our own rules. I think we should begin to feel a little less inhibited about that. But there is that aspect of, of a kind of package which is the wrong word, but a, a, way of, a way of speaking, a manner of speaking. Um, the writers drive it in this kind of strange, triangular way that, that we writers, or I can speak for myself, I, I kind of write to an editor. And in writing to an editor, after all these years, I know, I think, that I'm writing to the readership whom that editor represents. There's this kind of, there's this kind of agora that is kind of, that I have to address and therefore I feel driven to talk in certain ways mm -hmm. to, to, to that public. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel, I feel my writing highly defined mm -hmm. by a readership. I don't sense some crowding in the room as I'm doing it, but, I, but there's no question that they're there. Some of them are 
some of them come forward and can actually work as inhibiting figures. But by and large, the reader is, 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 yeah, is, is the person that, that is, is, is helping you shape the conversation. So there's, it's, a big, it's a big deal for me. Mm-hmm. I, I think that... Um, I, I do think you're writing for some kind of imagined LRB writer insofar as you can assume... Uh, a reader of, I think, greater sophistication than a lot of other um, magazines you write for. I mean, I, I mean, for example, you're never going to see the phrase, you know, uh, I don't know, Kafka, comma, a Czech writer, Czech Jewish writer who wrote in German. I mean, I think that you can assume that your readers know who Kafka was. And um, with regard to to, to style, I, mean, I worked in the LRB office as a one of the, one of the editors. Um, uh, from 2007 to 2011, and I was always struck by the fact that when American writers wrote for the LRB for the first time and tried to approximate what they thought was an LRB mm-hmm. style, the prose was always flowery and, and often really? flowery yeah. and ornate. Yeah. Actually, it's the, the opposite of what LRB writing tends to be. I mean, LRB writing is, I think, has a kind of uh, a, a real directness um, and uh, uh, a dislike of excessive, uh, certainly adverbs. That's one thing I, I, I hadn't really known that until I got yeah. to the office, yeah. just how much the paper hated yeah. adverbs. Yeah. And then I, I read the style guide, the, yeah. you know, the, the book, yeah. the master plan. <laughs> um, so this... Yeah, that combination of I think that the, the the directness, but also the but but also an indirectness of argument, an argument that kind of moves in in unusual and unexpected directions. But but the prose itself, I think, is is you know distinguished by its its clarity, its its simplicity, um, the preference for um, for a simple word over a complex or convoluted one. Um, and I, I learned. I mean, I, I mean, Mary Kay Wilmers was, you know, has not has been not just my my uh, my editor and employer, but really, uh, frankly, my teacher. I, 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 you know, really learned to write by working with her. And, and just to add to that, I think that um, although a paper is always more than the sum of its contributors, they also shape it. For some reason, we don't know how it is that all our various kinds of writing are there together as a kind of team of, of, of writers. I'm not talking about the editors, I'm talking about the whole lot, all, our, all, all of us as contributors. We're there, and, and, and we give a shape as well. So it's a dialectical thing, really, isn't it? It's a, it's a long conversation to and fro, a, a process between readers, contributors, and editors. But, um, I, but I do think you have this feeling of being part of what you might call a discursive community. Yeah, that you're not just about, writing yeah, for someone yeah. out there. You're writing for a community of readers, yeah. and I think that 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 it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing to have. Mm. You know that you're writing for for people who are actually going to pay attention to your argument, think about it, maybe even write a letter. And if you can, whether we'll publish yeah, it or yeah. not is another yeah. question. <laughs> <laughs> but but if, if, if you can convince yourself on, on a bad day, if you're, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. If you can convince yourself on a bad day that you know you're a contributor that really nobody kind of cares about, you can get really pissed off. And I think all contributors do that. Think, oh, we don't belong anymore to this community, but of course we all do, and it's good. It's a stroke of luck. Thanks very much. And with that, I'd like to thank Jeremy Harding and Adam Chat. Thank you. And thank you. you.